Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. Today, we're delving into a career development masterclass with the acclaimed director, Isabel Sieb, whose TV work includes episodes four to six of the BAFTA-nominated BBC series Vigil and Shetland for the BBC. Isabel joined fellow director and Cine Sisters founder, Samantha Harry, to discuss her key career decisions, the way she uses social media to engage with her audiences, and dissect some fantastic scenes she directed. A heads up, there are spoilers in this podcast for Shetland and Vigil, so please make sure you're all caught up before you listen. We hope you enjoy. Hi Isabel, thanks for, thanks for doing this session with us, it's great to have you here. So d- just a brief introduction about Isabel's work, so um, I've known Isabel for quite a few years now, I'm thrilled to say she's a senior sisters member, one of the new founding members. Um, and so uh, Isabel started out making shorts like most of us did as directors, um, but notably were her award winning shorts, Free Women Wait for Death, was, nominate, was won, nominated and won the Chris Collins Live Action Award, award at Encounters. And then she moved on to her first TV credits, which was uh, The Athena for Sky, uh, swiftly followed by Shetland uh, Vigil. And uh, now she's currently working on The Devil's Hour for Hartswood. Um, and we should also congratulate her on her recent, uh, recent BAFTA nomination for Vigil for Best Drama, twice nominated, nominated Thank for The Athena as well. So thanks, thanks for joining us, Isabel. And we're, we're going to talk a bit today about your kind of like, we've called it a career case study about your sort of like um, career trajectory into television, dra- directing drama, obviously, from, from you know, that path from shorts and your first credit was Athena um, yeah. on that. But we're just going to sort of like talk a bit about the sort of like high-end TV credits, notably Shetland and Vigil and what you're working on next and, and kind of how you got there and the methods of working. But um, I thought it'd be really interesting if you could just tell us a bit about can you talk about your career path leading up to directing Shetland as your first kind of high-end TV job? Because obviously it's quite a notorious step up and yeah. Shetland is high-end TV, as, as Andrea from Directors UK pointed out to me um, when we were talking about the budgets for those episodes, like 1.3 million. So it's yeah. it's quite a, it's a platform for people um, stepping up to high-end TV, in particular one of those shows. But t- talk us through sort of like how you, how you got there as a director. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much, Sam, for joining as well. I'm really glad it's you. Um, so I, I moved to the UK in 2010 to study screenwriting. Um, I grew up in Germany and lived in Tasmania and South Africa before coming here. Mm-hmm. And graduated in 2013 and then made lots and lots of short films, including Three Women Wit for Death, which got me my agent and got me kind of on the path to doing, well, getting interviews for, for TV dramas. And as you said, my first... TV directing job that I got was a pilot episode for the Athena mm-hmm. which um, had a tiny tiny budget of about a quarter of a million per episode mm-hmm. um, and but thankfully the pilot got picked up by Sky and then I came back to direct the first six out of 26 episodes in total so that was my first um, TV directing job and yeah I was I was very lucky that Shetland was actually my first interview after finishing the Athena um which definitely gave me the wrong impression that that's how easy it was going to be from then on to <laughs> <laughs> which was not at all the case but in in that case I was very fortunate that um yeah 
coming the back off the back of doing this uh, very small show that I got to do uh, season five of Shetland. Mm. And, and how how was how was it getting the job on Shetland? Because um, obviously it's quite a quite a notorious tricky step up. But like it's I you know was a was the champions involved there? Was your agent? Was it agent? Did it help having the award winning short behind you rather than just a bunch of shorts? Do you think? I think definitely. I know that was the short that convinced the producer to give me the job. Um, it's really interesting because up until that point, I'd only done comedy, really, or comedy drama. Mm-hmm. Like, like that short film was Three Women Wait for Death was made under a comedy scheme. It definitely had drama in it, so I would call it comedy drama rather than just comedy. Um, and the Athena was the same. It was like a teen drama. Mm-hmm. So I was very surprised when Shetland came to me and my first thought actually was, oh, maybe they're trying to be funnier this year. Maybe they're <laughs> funnier. Um, but obviously not because it's the bleakest show on British TV. But <laughs> I remember so, so definitely one of my greatest champions uh, and someone I owe a great deal to is, is Eric Coulter, who was the mm-hmm. producer on Shetland because he just, we, I had my interview and he just knew from that short film that I could do drama. I think before I really knew that I could do drama. Mm. Um, and yeah, and gave me the job. And it was definitely a big risk on on his end to get someone like me who'd only done tiny, tiny, yeah, one very small budget TV series to come on to something that, you know, is by far the biggest thing that I, I'd have done at that point. Mm. Um, and he was really, really great whilst we were filming it as well. Cause he would, he, I think as a producer, he's just someone who kind of, um, doesn't like hanging around on set. So he would always come to base in the morning, make sure I was okay and that everyone was okay and happy and then kind of leave us to it and leave me to it. And that sort of freedom was something that I think was really inspiring and encouraging and was something that I I certainly wasn't used to because even on my first job, I always had two producers kind of behind me looking at my yeah. mind making sure I wasn't messing it up <laughs> yeah. just, just touching on that because I think like one of the things that comes up when I, when I talk to other directors is that something like you know you said you've done like comedy dramas and you can kind of get pigeonholed in that and people have seen yeah. that before you can direct and same for anybody else working any particular genre so you know I can see that big leap with Eric Coulter saying he's sure you could do other things but do yeah. you know do you mind if I ask what because it's always interesting about other directors process so what did you prep for that interview, knowing that you'd done like comedy drama shorts and this was a big bleak kind of thriller? What what did sort of materials did you go into going yeah. to meet I mean, I kind of I have a fairly similar approach to all of my interviews, no matter what genre they are, really. So mm-hmm. I, I I'd like to do kind of two or three um visual boards I'm really terrible with InDesign and and these kind of programs yeah. and I just go to uh, use Photoshop and just put like images together um but then really have a reason for every image and why it's there and I'm able to kind of talk about that mm-hmm. so that's kind of my approach and and really really dissecting the scripts and and I usually talk about the script and the characters and what I liked about it and how I see that first and then go to the visuals last because I just kind of I don't know I think maybe because I studied screenwriting I think it's important that they see especially for a young director that I'm not somebody who just kind of has a cool image in their head mm. that I understand the script and that the visuals for me come from character journey and come are motivated by the story beats rather than 
a cool thought, you know. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. Um, t- just talking about champions and that um, Eric is a champion for you getting your job on that show. With yeah. the production company Silverprint, isn't it? Where we'll talk yes. about that a yeah. bit more when we get to the clip of Shetland. Um, just because because I, I know you sort of somewhat personally, I know lo- alongside your directing work, you've always been like a really prestigious kind of networker and in a great way and really great at building like those sort of like professional relationships and also to an extent using social media as well for like in also in a great way for exposure. Do you, do you think that's kind of helped progress your work as well as alongside obviously the talent as well, obviously in your... Thank you. <laughs> um... Yes, 100%. I mean, I feel like for me, it came of, it kind of came out of a necessity because I didn't know a single person in this country when I moved here. Mm. I had I had absolutely no connections whatsoever. And I, I really, I'm, I'm glad that I studied what I studied and I went to the university I went to, but it wasn't like the National Film School or somewhere that really sets you up to, to mm. dive into the industry and have contacts and have connections. So I really kind of had to build that for myself. Um, and so I just kind of would stay up late and research people. I would research like who were the screen stars of tomorrow in the last five years, whose email address can I find online and who can I email and just, and that's, that's what I did for, you know, probably three, four, five years and still do sometimes when there's someone whose work I really like, I will just message them. Um, and I feel like that kind of over time and over those years, like while I was at university and after I graduated really help build a network and I think a lot of these people like I'm very happy to say them became my friends mm. um, and that's a really nice thing and like one of my other amazing champions is a brilliant director called Lindsay Miller mm-hmm. who um, let me shadow her on one of her first tv directing jobs which was a kids show that she did up in Glasgow called Eve mm-hmm. um, and just having me there on set shadowing her and just it kind of just demystified for me what a TV set is like. And it showed me that really it's actually not that different from making a short film. It's just more people, mm. uh, a bit more money and less time. Mm. Um, and that kind of demystified that for me and made me feel like, you know what, she's doing such an amazing job. I feel like I could maybe do that too. <laughs> um, yeah. And then a couple of years later, she actually got me to direct second unit on a TV film that she directed called The Boy with a Top Knot for BBC mm. And that 100% made a huge difference in me being able to convince the producers of the Athena to, to give me that pilot. Mm-hmm. Because I, I could say, look, I have actually directed on a TV set. It was second unit, but it was for this film that did really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I know how a TV set is run. So I, I know that her kind of support and generosity really helped me. Yeah, because yeah. when, when I first met you, I think we you were having that kind of thing of like like just meeting people for coffees and had yeah. a social media presence, which I think like um, younger directors have really like pushed and not everybody's using it. But I think it's like been a, like a brave new world with social media that a lot of people like are starting to realise is like really important that in a great way. It can get exposure for your work and the way you use it. I mean, we both met Kate Heron and Kate Heron's a great example yeah. of like totally using social media in a fantastic way. So I think that was really interesting. Um, and just kind of that idea of peer-to-peer mentoring something that I think, you know, is really important. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think with, with social media, because um, I haven't touched upon that yet, I, I feel like it was kind of a similar thought that I had to put myself out there because I was never on any of those lists of exciting people. I was never a screen star mm-hmm. tomorrow. I was never had, I never had a, a short film BAFTA nominated. 
I didn't go to the NFTS. Like I was never one of the cool people or one of the exciting people to look at. So I kind of had to put myself out there in any way I could. And and also with both the Athena, with the Athena in particular, but also Shetland, they were they didn't have marketing departments behind them. So that work wasn't going to be promoted unless I did it myself. So I kind of had to turn myself into my own marketing machine (laughs) and uh, let people know that this work was coming out basically and I think as you mentioned Kate like she's a good friend of mine and I think she's I mean incredibly talented but she has also very successfully built her career and reputation and brand through very clever use of social media and that's something Mm. that really inspired me to attempt the same and like not feel guilty or horrible about it because I think like it, it, it never feels good trying to I don't know, yeah, <laughs> brag about your own work, but that's not what it is. It's, it's just kind of, yeah, trying to c- continue to get work and trying to get your work noticed, really. Yeah, I, th- I think it's important to flag that actually the social media thing isn't like some kind of idea of showing off. It is actually yeah. something that promotes your work and creates exposure for the work, which, you know, I mean... Um, I know we both met Kate when she even had like social media plans for shorts, and yeah, she, yeah, yeah. which actually I was massively impressed by. And, okay. and if you if you thought, did you have the same like a kind of plan for social media? Not so much. Not so much. I feel like I'm much more of an instinctive social media user. I just mm-hmm. post when I'm really when I'm really excited about something. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's that's me, and I, I try as much as I can to like be myself and be authentic with how I put myself out there because I think that's mm-hmm. the only thing you can do so I, I just post whenever I'm excited about something really. yeah. <laughs> I don't know it might be at the wrong time of the day or the worst day of the week I don't really know <laughs> successfully though we, we should move on to talking about Shetland so Sh- Shetland your first HETV high-end tv credit sorry obviously uh in series seven now but you work on series five with great class Dougie Hensel Mark Bonner uh Alison O'Donnell and we're just going to look at the first clip of it before we we talk about it which is like um a great a great clip from your series five it's at four isn't it I think actually this is at five it's the ending of five sorry so if we could just run that first clip then please sure that'd be great our first clip is from season five, episode five of Shetland. A thrilling standoff and car chase scene where DI Jimmy Perez hunts down Paul Kiernan. So uh, interestingly, like both Shetland and Vig- Vigil, both thrillers of like really different natures and stories, but they've both got this kind of uh, contrast of like kind of action or high action set pieces and like really emotional, intimate scenes. But with Shetland in this clip, could you talk us through the challenges? I mean, such a remote location. I mean, closer to Norway than it is to UK, (laughs) crazily in Lerwick. But if we start with the car car chase that we saw Mm. in that clip. Well, I mean, the reason I wanted to show this clip was that it, for a a budget level like Shetland, that was a really ambitious scene. And and my episodes were, I think, the most ambitious that they done ever on Shetland in terms of really wanting to introduce some action elements and I'd never done anything like it before. And just um, remind us what the budget is did you say? Um, as far as I know it's, it was 1.3 million an episode okay. um, but keep in mind a lot of that is transporting people and gear to and from Shetland. <laughs> uh, so the main challenges really I think with Shetland are logistics and weather uh, just because you know Shetland like we could on, on the actual Shetland Islands you could only film on on the biggest island which they call mainland uh, Shetland 
um, you can't really go to any of the other islands because it's uh, yeah just so remote. Um, and there's certain types of gear and uh, yeah that you just can't get there or like the roads won't be wide enough. So that car chase sequence we actually didn't film in Shetland itself. It wouldn't have been possible to get an okay. A-frame um, and all the gear we needed to do the, the car crash up there. So that was actually filmed in an area called Loch Tom, which is about 45 minutes or an hour outside of Glasgow. And it's the only area uh, in the relative proximity of Glasgow that looks like Shetland, which means like mm. there's no trees because that's kind of the, the key, uh, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Feature. Feature, that's the word, thank you. Um, yeah, so that we shot near Glasgow. Um, whereas the scene on the beach we did film in Shetland and yeah okay so they're, they're split across two locations essentially. yeah hmm. um, and I think for that I mean weather really was for both actually weather was the biggest challenge you you may have noticed with the car chase we shot mm-hmm. that first three days that it starts in the heavy rain and then by the time the car crashes the sun's come out <laughs> and that is unfortunately something that happens a lot in Scotland especially in Shetland mm-hmm. um but yeah so weather continuity was a big challenge but then also just dealing with the heavy heavy rains mm-hmm. and filming in Shetland itself we honestly got battered every day for 12 hours you know and I remember that the days that we filmed that scene on the beach there'd been weather warnings we had really really heavy storms and there were some, you know, some shots where Mark could barely open his eyes because so much sand was coming at him. Mm. Um, so just these kind of challenges. And also, obviously, it's the North Sea. And we had to get him into the water. We had to get crew into the water. We had to get the stunned um, swimmer into the water. Mm. So, yeah, those are really the challenges. <laughs> so it sounds like you, to me, like you're really trying to push the envelope in terms of cinema, um like with Shetland in, in, you know, in that kind of high NTV arena on, you know, with what you could, the facilities that you had. But, you know, had, well, sort of twofold question, really, because I know we're going to talk a bit more about your your prep for more action scenes when we talk about visual. But, you know, could be directors prep so individual? So what, what kind of methods, what was your kind of personal prep for, like, this kind of, like, quite a technical car chase scene? And then this really kind of emotional, kind of intimate scene, really, when Mark Bonner, in, in case nobody knows, who's a who's an alcoholic, is yeah. um, in in full um, alcoholic mode, waking up on the beach and then kind of discovering these these dead bodies. Yeah, I mean, generally, what I always do fairly early on in prep is just sit down and make a, a write up a shot list for everything, um, mm-hmm. just so that I imagined every single scene and I've got a list for myself it hardly ever ends up being those exact shots but that's something I do early on in my prep just so I have an idea when I when I come to the scene but obviously with when when there's stunts involved you have to really have a exact plan um and be as detailed as possible because it involves safety and everybody needs to know what you're trying to achieve and needs to know what you're doing on the day so with that, I'm very, very bad at drawing myself. So I always get a storyboard artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a brilliant one that I worked with on Shetland for the first time and then also did Vigil with and The Devil's Hour. So he's really, really good. Um, but what I do, my shot, lens, my shot list, especially for those kind of things where I do need to know specifically exactly which shots we're going to um, be getting, I tend to write up like a paragraph for each shot. So they're very, very detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I so that's what I send my storyboard artists and I also send them pictures of the locations 
Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that works quite well because he knows very much exactly what I want it to look like and then he can draw it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's usually where I start with the bigger scenes is, is a storyboard. And then there's usually, you know, conversations with the stunt coordinators at first and then lots of conference calls with every department involved, um, mm-hmm. making sure that we all know what we're doing. And, and with this scene, it, it was interesting with the cartridge because uh, once we had the location and we knew what we we're going to do with the car, the stunt coordinator said it's not safe to have a driver in that car. So it, there was a dummy in there and we basically attached the car to some type of cannon that then shot the car into the sky. Um, oh, wow. and, and obviously with Shetland, like it was clear that we were only going to be able to do that once. Um, <laughs> multiple vehicles available. So... Um, and were you shooting single, single camera set up for that or did you have multiple cameras? No, so that was one where we basically, we got, um, we had our two main cameras our a camera and our b camera in like um shells to protect them but then we also had i think a couple of black magics and a couple gopros that we just place everywhere mm. um and actually what happened was that the car actually went further than what the stunt coordinator had anticipated and it landed on directly on our a camera so oh, no. <laughs> Cannon was a bit more forceful than, than they'd anticipated which could have gone really badly but thankfully um <laughs> it was all good and the camera was actually fine so the, the camera shell <laughs> very strong Hard than everything. And, yeah. and at the opposite end of the scale, obviously, like a great, wonderful performance from Mark Bonner, a wonderful actor there. Like, yeah. you know, how did you sort of like a, work with the with the actor getting that kind of performance out of him on that scene, you know? Yeah, I mean, I felt like Shetland was my first job where I really got to work with very established and very experienced actors like Mark. Mm. I definitely find with them, like, or someone like him, he doesn't really need as much directing from me as as a, one of the you know new cast members on a show like the Athena you should work with like really new sort of team cast yes exactly yeah, yeah. So it's, it's really more about having a conversation about the scene and talking him through what I was thinking um and get his feeling for it and if that works for him and then just letting him play and letting him yeah. be and I feel like with these kind of scenes I often just look at myself as like the first member of the audience and just give mm. them like my gut reaction to what they're doing and um, and just making sure that they feel comfortable and safe whilst whilst doing so. And and with that scene, did you just kind of like let him go at it, or I mean, obviously you blocked out, blocked it, obviously. But I mean, you know, was there was that kind of like a yeah, I mean, with kind the, of scene or this was a scene where I knew what at least whilst he was still on land, I knew exactly what the shots were going to be like. I knew I wanted to do that, him lying down and then getting up with mm-hmm. him. And I want to do the shot where he walks into focus. Um, I knew there was going to be the drone shot at the end, but that was all some subject to conversation with him. You know, like I, I never try to impose shots on on actors, but he he he's so lovely and so yeah, he was really really up for all of that. So quite a kind of responsive collaboration with Mark. Very responsive, and he's he's also. I mean, he he would go into the freezing cold water, scream and cry, and then come out and be smiling from ear to ear and oh, hugging people and asking. <laughs> If we, if we could you know take a selfie of him in his wet weather gear and all of that so <laughs> he's a really nice actor to be working with on these kind of yeah scenes yeah, and shows. Yeah, so, so uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna run the Q&A bits in little sections so everybody's aware so um, after we talk about each bit there'll be like three Q&A sessions so this is a Q&A session I don't know if there's any questions in Sean's gonna run that for us Sean? Yeah we've had one come in um I'm not quite sure. I don't quite understand it, so I'm going to try my best. So apologies to whoever sent this in. But um, I'm assuming this person has made several shorts at this point, and they're asking whether they should 
um, invest in the long journey and, and make a feature in order to attract attention and get work in high-end TV, or if they should keep making shorts um, in order to, to reach their goal of, of working in high-end TV. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tricky because I think everyone's journey is different. Like, I've, I haven't yet made a feature film. So for me, um, a short film was was good enough, and I do think it's good enough um, to get into television. You probably won't get high in TV straight away. You probably end up doing something a bit more low budget first. Like, mm. you know, BBC Three have fantastic, you know, half hour shows that they do that are at a reasonable budget, where they often look for new talent. I think the most important thing is making sure that you have an agent that you like and that you trust. Um, and who will send your work out to the right people. Um, and I think, yeah, to be honest, I feel like if, the, if you have one or two short films that you feel really reflect who you are as a director or that you are, yeah, that you've, you feel show of your talent really, then, then that should and will be enough. And it certainly was for me, but obviously, you know, everyone's journey is different. And if there's, a feature film that you have ready to go, then you shouldn't wait and be stopped. But don't go and make a feature film just to get TV work. That's what I would say, because it's it's a long, yeah, it's a long journey, as you know. Good advice. Um, so, so moving on to the next court phase of your career. So you've done, do you see, you know, you've done Shetland, your first high-end TV gig. And then next up, you end up working on Vigil, obviously, which... Yeah. World Productions, obviously massive, who had a huge hit with The Bodyguard, their next project, much anticipated. And obviously, um, visual uh, by creator, writer, Tom Edge, mm-hmm. starring great cast, Saran Jones, Ray Leslie, Sean Evans, for those of us who don't know, Pat and Joseph. And obviously, you're, you're helming with James Strong and you're taking the back end of the episodes yeah. with the more infamous themes, it might well be said. Um, but obviously, like, I think we'd all sort of assume that, like, going from Shetland to visual kind of be plain sailing but in, I know in our pre-chats it wasn't quite that simple so could you just like talk us through like the next steps like going from Shetland up to Vigil so yeah. which is obviously clearer much bigger budget and a much higher production sort of level no offence to Shetland because it's a great show but obviously Vigil's clearly a step up from that. Definitely so that for me personally was the hardest step to take um, as I said earlier like I was really lucky to get Shetland very quickly after doing the Athena mm-hmm. um, but going from Shetland to Vigil, I couldn't get work for, I think it was like nine months from Shetland airing to me getting Vigil. And in those nine months, I did 23 interviews for 14 wow. different shows. Um, and it should be said as well that I I was very clear with my agents that I would only take meetings for things that felt like a step up. Because mm-hmm. um, I did get sent, you know, they asked me to come back to do another season of Shetland, which was very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I got sent, you know, similar type of shows, crime shows or shows at a similar budget level. Um, and I was just really conscious that I didn't want to get stuck at that level, even though it's a really great level to get stuck at. But mm-hmm. for me, I'm just, I've always been really conscious that I'm only going to be kind of up and coming and exciting for so long. And I, I wanted to try and kind of climb up the ladder as much as possible whilst I can still be regarded as such so um that was really my my goal for yeah moving on to the the next level um but it certainly yeah it was a long journey and uh, there was a lot of rejection um and I'm I'm fortunate that I don't have a family to look after so I, I was only looking after myself and so I was able to wait it out or you know 
hold did, on. Did it, did it feel like you'd hit a bit of a ceiling, so to speak, that you had to push through to the next kind of thing in a way? I don't know. It's interesting because like I did get fantastic meetings. I got meetings for really, really big shows. Um, and often, as I said, I did 23 interviews to 14 shows. So I, I often got invited to a second meeting. And and there came a point where my agents really asked, like, is there anything she can do better? Like, what, what is your feedback? Yeah. And the feedback was always really positive. So there wasn't really anything to take away that I necessarily felt I was doing wrong I think it was it was probably more of a reluctance to go with someone less experienced on on these yeah I, I mean I agree with that I think there's a really big fear of like yeah. uh, experience fear I think from production companies. experience and maybe age um I don't know <laughs> yeah, possibly yeah um, and sometimes gender as well if we've been really frank about it as well, I think it'd be interesting too but I mean out of those 23 meetings who knows you know but I do think the experience level as, as we both know can often be a know and and then um you did get get a vigil and and you know we talked about champions earlier on again again the producer who i don't think stayed on the show did he but the initial producer eric coulter again so somebody who's working you champion you he 100 i mean i've never talked to him about that but i'm convinced that he definitely put in a good word for me and made sure that Mm. they would see me for a meeting um and the meeting went really well so i i do feel like that's you know, I, I fought for it and I earned it, but definitely Eric as my champion champion made sure that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think when we talk about champions, they can get you in the door, but they can't get you the job. You've got, clearly yeah. got that yourself. But I mean, sometimes it's just getting in the door that can be the problem, can't it? You know what I mean? So I think yeah. you know, the interesting to see you had that kind of follow through pass with it, um, working again with different, but Eric didn't stay on the project. We did. He had to leave for personal reasons, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ended up having a producer called Andrew Daniel who um, stepped on. I think it was only really a couple of weeks before they started filming, before James started filming Block One. So mm-hmm. it was, yeah, yeah, it was a lot for her to take on at such a late stage. But um, we're gonna we're gonna look at a clip of visual in a second, yeah. but more than more infamous scenes. But for, but for, just before that, I just wanted to ask you. Um, Obviously, like Vigil is kind of um, unusual that it's like a really kind of muscular, kind of like submarine military thriller, but it's got real kind of strong female characters and a female centric storyline. And w- yeah. was that something that attracted you to the scripts initially? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I think that's really what made me fall in love with it because I felt like I, I, I only read episode one before my meeting, but even then I could already tell that there were two really, really interesting female characters at the mm-hmm. centre of that, who, who would have a really um, unusual um, and really in, interesting and brilliant uh, relationship as well, um, at the heart of what felt like a really exciting kind of big BBC block, blockbuster with commercial appeal and yeah. in a fascinating world that I knew absolutely nothing about at the time. So I felt like it really, having, having just done my first ever bits of action on Chetland, I was excited to try and do more of that. And and it, it, so sorry, there's a bit of a lag on the screen. But but just before we like look at the clip, just talking about working with writers, what was the difference between working on Shetland um, with, I think it was Paul Logue, wasn't it, and David Kane, and yeah. now you're working with a, a big showrunner, Tom Edge. So is there a difference between yeah. like a creator showrunner? I don't know if, if Tom was actually the showrunner. He was certainly like the creator and executive okay. producer. Um, it, it was a bit different in that... I only really spoke to Tom myself once on one like Zoom call with all the story producers 
on one when I was in prep that was the only conversation I ever had with him in person mm-hmm. not even really in person <laughs> on screen uh, aside from that all of my notes and thoughts would always go to the story producers and they would go to him mm-hmm. so there was there was like a layer in between us whereas on on Shetland and also on the Athena my first show there was a lot of like direct communication with the writer but I, I don't know if that's got anything to do with the size of the show if that's just a personal preference or from the production company or yeah or, yeah it's a rare experience of working with writers and how how much did you feel uh if confidentiality allows how much did you feel like your notes were taken on board on both shows was it you know to a large I, extent they or? definitely were they definitely were I think the main difference was that there were just more people involved in Vigil who all had notes so mm-hmm. there, there, there were more voices whereas there, there was more money obviously involved yeah, yeah. Whereas with Shetland, it was really, it was, it was me, it was Eric and it was BBC Scotland really. Um, so I, I feel like that's really the key difference, but no, I mean, my, my notes were definitely taken on. Oh, it's good to, yeah. good to uh, so, so can we have, we'll have a look at a first clip from Vigil now, which is the uh, diving suit torpedo clip, Sean, if we can. Our next clip is the heart in mouth torpedo tube scene from the end of Vigil episode five. We're 50 minutes into the episode. So, so that that sequence became one of the TV like cliffhangers of the year. I seem to remember. I was like, you know, Saran Jones stuck in the torpedo pod, the water filling. Obviously, a huge set piece, like both technically, you know, in terms of drama. So, what kind of shape did your prep and planning take for that? Obviously, it was, you know, how did you approach it? Yeah, I mean, so before the sequence that we saw now there's like a five minute scene with Saran and Sean in the contaminated area mm. where she then figures out who the bad guy is um, and then his suit rips and he's getting contaminated with the poison and it's all very very dramatic um, so that's that was a whole sequence and then the journey and then her actually inside of the tube and we kind of shot that across three different days in terms of planning I mean there was a lot what was nice about my episodes was that because there were all these different types of emergency states that were going to happen in the story and in my episodes that we could really reinvent the lighting. Because obviously um, the kind of the the normal uh, submarine lighting had been established in in the first three episodes and looked fantastic. Mm -hmm. But what was really fun was here that we got to play with that and figure that out. Um, So we did lighting tests. um, We did tests with the suits. We really talked about, you know, the colors like, Arrival was a bit of an inspiration there, making sure that we had light inside of the helmets uh, and then trying them on on Saran and Sean. Um, I mean, I think something that really influenced what I was really able to do on those days was just how incredibly uncomfortable, heavy and claustrophobic those suits were for Saran and Sean. So I had to really be very considerate in terms of how many shots I could physically do with them. Um, So that played a big role in it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, all the, the journey that you saw there, that was all entirely done handheld. And actually in the, the wide shots where you don't see Saran's face, it was her stunt double Rachel. Mm-hmm. because It was just really, really, yeah, quite oppressive and very heavy um, and not fun for Saran to wear that. Yeah, okay. So I kind of made sure that she was only in there when she absolutely had to be. And, and was, it, was there a big thing of like having to story-wise, like, build tension and like not making sure that you didn't sort of like 
uh, how to put get to a sort of like peak too early do you know what I mean in terms of because you're quite it's quite a long sequence isn't it throughout that episode getting to this kind of cliffhanger but then in the next episode it kind of has to go further as well so you can't yeah. just have the kind of dramatic beats in that as well. definitely that was definitely something we considered with the lighting stage. it's a shame that that wasn't actually in the clip but the mm-hmm. the lighting stayed in the missile deck when they're in it in, in this episode before the big um finale that we just saw uh, we wanted it to be almost as if it's complete darkness. Obviously, there has to be some sort of lighting because it can't just be black on screen. But we wanted it to really feel like all the lights were off. Um, whereas in the next clip, which we'll see in episode six, the the hunt, I really wanted a different lighting state that felt different and even more threatening. Mm. Um, so those were conversations that we had. But I think something that really helped with building the tension was just like how huge the set was and how far the physical journey was. So that was something we could really play with and um, yeah, making use of the geography and um, yeah, going up and down the steps and yeah, <laughs> crawling and uh, yeah all of those things and the, and the yeah. performance for the actors through because obviously you're shooting them performance wise through a huge diving bell yeah helmet sort of thing so how did that work how did you try and like manage that performance with the I mean that was that was kind of the difficult thing because they couldn't hear outside of the helmet like they could hear each other and they could hear me if I spoke through a microphone mm-hmm. I yeah. don't love speaking through a microphone I quite like having eye contact when talking yeah so I would try and like come to them and obviously after every take we took the helmet off because it was so heavy and so claustrophobic so yeah. that kind of slowed the process down um being able to talk to them but also just again being super super conscious of making sure that I, I get what I need and I don't push them any further mm-hmm. so we, we really we rehearsed everything through and through without them wearing the suits even then we put the suits on and then the helmet would only go on like just before we call action um so really making sure that we all knew exactly what was needed and where they were going to go and what the beats were and then doing absolute minimal takes like I remember that at the end of the day like we we, with the the day that we shot everything that's inside the missile deck before the clip that we just saw we actually wrapped two hours early, but not because there was nothing left to shoot. It was just because they were both so incredibly exhausted having worn that all day. Um, and I remember that really, it came to the end of the day and I, I went to Saran and Sean and just asked them like, how many more takes have you got in you? <laughs> and then I could really think about, okay, what am I going to do with the takes that they still have in them? Um, and what am I going to get? And I remember that our very last kind of big wide shot, we just put two cameras um, and just got one take. And that's that's really all I could ask them to do. Wow! But at the end, that's all you need. If you've got one one good take with amazing actors and great lighting, that's all you need. That's all you need to make it work. Right. Um, and we've actually we're we're going to just talk briefly about it, but your kind of technical purpose to for this. Yeah. And we've got actually some um, some material to show. Let me just wrangle the technology. Bear with me. Hopefully, so that's my website. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I wasn't reading your blog before we started, and uh, I wasn't stalking. Um, uh, so here we have the, um, we've got the, um, so you storyboarded the torpedo sequence, obviously. Yeah. Which you sort of through now. So you, you'd obviously plan this quite carefully. Yeah, so that really with the torpedo sequence, the necessity what was for it to be storyboarded just so that the production designer knew what he had to build to make that work because Saran, her character is inside of that tube for kind of the, almost the first half of episode six. Yeah. And there I'll were just, I'll just scroll through this so we can. Yeah. See. Um, so it was really just to work out 
like, how do we do this? And we ended up, he ended up building two, two physical tubes that we put her into. Mm-hmm. Um, and one had a camera hatch, like just where her face was for the close up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, again, and I tried to already on these storyboards, keep it fairly simple, but all of the more complicated shots we ended up not doing because it just wasn't possible. There you go. So you can see that. So that, that was the surround mm-hmm. tube. Um, with the with the hole just where her face was, and we ended up. Okay, this, spinning... is, this is the tank. It's then I'm guessing. Yes. So yeah. we we ended up kind of slowly drowning her in a tank whilst in whilst in that torpedo. Um, that's not actually Saran. That's the stunt double Rachel. <laughs> we, had a, we had a second tube that didn't have the camera hatch for the close up, where we just put the camera next to the feet. Okay. Uh, and that's where we had Rachel. And so that that final shot where you see the water rising, that's that. Mm. Rachel um, in the proper tube that was fully closed. So, so if we just like pop back to this one here, so mm-hmm. you've got this tube within this tank set up here. So obviously yeah. it's a it's a split scene, isn't it? Obviously, so you, yeah. yeah. But what we ended up doing was so again, and I, I had a long conversation with Saran just to kind of work out how she could spend the least time in there because it is obviously mm-hmm. like really terrifying. Um, and we just decided that she was going to play all of the story beats from the end of episode five and halfway through episode six, basically in one take. Mm-hmm. And, and then we were just going to swing lenses or adjust. So we ended up also pulling the, the tube over so I could also get a side close up. So we used mm-hmm. the same camera hatch, we basically just spun the tube around mm-hmm. and then put her back in. Um, and how did that work performance? Because obviously you split, you split the scene across two locations probably different days I'm guessing mm. um, and then how how did you help how did you help surround like get to like it's a really high level of emotion obviously isn't it oh, between, so how, how did she sort of like did she get herself there how did you help her get there between um well we sat in a trailer for half an hour and talked through exactly what those beats were mm-hmm. um, and we numbered them and we talked about what they were in the story and she knew exactly like because it all in episode six, every every emotional moment that reminds her of a specific flashback of her relationship mm-hmm. of her uh, adoptive daughter and mm-hmm. the, the trauma that she went through. So we we spend about half an hour just just talking through exactly what those beats were, and also we had to divide it into kind of the dry scenes inside of the tube where she was just playing performance, and then we put her on a crane and drowned her in the water for the moment when the water rises and, and lowers again. So those we played separately. Um, but then once we talked through that, I I just watched her, <laughs> and it was it was honestly an incredible experience because an actor of her caliber just to kind of we just had the close up on her, and it was I think it was like a 10, 12 minute take each time, mm-hmm. and she played through all of the emotions from first waking up and being trapped, all the way to thinking she's gonna die, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, closing her eyes, giving up, um, uh, yeah, and we did that a couple of times each per lens and per angle mm-hmm. uh, and that honestly I, I remember saying to her once we were done like that that was the highlight of the show right here because <laughs> it, 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 no it was it was just phenomenal I, I just watched her face and I knew exactly which beat she was playing every time well it's really um, interesting that you talk to because obviously it echoes that beat where in the flashback previously that where she's loses her husband in the car underwater it's obviously a really important emotional moment as well as action which is always interesting about it but great so um so really interesting sort of like set of prep and stuff and then it's sort of well not completely different but a different kind of thing we're going to look at a clip um which is called the hunt where mm. and when we we talked about this initially before we looked at the clip you talked about how um 
you came up with a lot of ideas for how this would look and feel um and we talked about we should talk a bit more about that afterwards but how um as a director you brought to it, a bit more to it than was on the page what ended up on the screen sort of thing so we'll have a look at that clip now then so could have a look at the hunt clip please for our next clip we watched the hunt sequence from vigil's final episode as DCI Silver and CPO Doward play a game of cat and mouse below the waves, starting at 23 minutes. So, so Isabel, so tell us about tell us about this scene, um, Isabel. What, what did you want to sort of like bring to it, directorially speaking? And um, so, what I was kind kind of saying earlier for the previous scene is that again we got to really play with the lighting set here, and story wise, the the siren had now been kind of bleached and washed out of the air so it was safe to put lighting back on but at the same time it was still a safety hazard to go into the missile deck so we kind of thought about okay what can that lighting set look like and make it really really terrifying and I had seen an episode of the Mandalorian recently where they were in that space prison and there was red flashing lights and I thought this is amazing let's let's try and do that and so that was something we tested and I think just just ended up working really well um, going with the red flashing lights and then I mean in terms of what was in the script so all of the kind of the key story beats were in there in terms of they go into the missile deck it becomes a cat and mouse chase she picks up a fire extinguisher and bangs it against the door to to attract attention and then throws it in his direction that was in the script but everything else um, was something that we worked out, I, I worked out. And I mean, the nice thing was whilst shooting this is that we were on this set for the first four weeks of the shoot. And I think if I remembered right, we shot this scene kind of in week three or four. So I'd been on the set for quite some time. And the really nice thing was that during my lunch break, I could just walk around the set mm-hmm. and think about the scenes to come and think about how I want to block something and how I want to stage it. And with this scene, it just ended up being one where we ended up doing exactly what I'd planned shot by shot on the day mm. and it's it's that's why it's something I'm really proud of because I feel like it, it turned out nicely and it's nice when you see like a little plan that you hatched up in your own head whilst having lunch and um, walking around a set and come together. So it seemed like you had a great kind of flow through the space because obviously this is the big reveal of who you know uh, the body is for want of a better word yeah. and so you know with that kind of flow and kind of cat and mouse chasing that you thought about because I remember when we initially talked you said something about it, it felt like really smart writing it was like these two things yeah I mean the thing is something I should say as well is that we didn't have any additional money um after mm-hmm. COVID happened so a lot of the budget really was lost for going on hold for five months and and bringing in COVID measures mm-hmm. But we still had to deliver something really exciting, especially Mm -hmm. in the finale episode. And I think that sequence was really smart writing and that it's just two people in a room room, effectively. But it's done in such a way that hopefully really gets people on their toes. And and I really wanted that horror-esque feel to it and Mm -hmm. having... Lorne, who played Doward, the evil traitor, where he's quite, he's very tall and having him wear the gas mask in like red flashing lights, I think helped kind of bring that terror across. Um, yeah, so it, it was really about building a, the climactic scene of the series with not much budget left, really. That's what we were trying to do. It's essentially a chase sequence, isn't it? Which yeah. Is in the best way, but like a kind of stalk one, which is a really interesting kind of element to bring into it as well. Yeah. And, then in- and I think what was so amazing about the sets was that they really were 
like every space was connected. So mm -hmm. I was really able to follow the actor with the camera on a really, really long journey. Mm -hmm. And we could go upstairs and downstairs. I mean, what we did was so that missile deck set had steps that went up and there was like a very small section of it that we could actually be in the upstairs bit. But then we had to double up the downstairs part as the upstairs. So that's something we did in there as well, because there's obviously the section where she runs up the steps and then he goes to follow her. And we have that that stunt where he falls halfway down the stairs, having been hit by the fire extinguisher. Um, and then when he gets back up, we're back downstairs on the, on the downstairs set pretending to be upstairs. Okay, <laughs> and, interesting. And that, was, that was the brilliance of the design as well, that you never really knew where you were on that set. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it could have been anywhere. And that was something that I tried to take advantage of. And uh, so just last thing I want to ask about this is, um, oh, sorry, it's been completely out of my head now. Just let me get it back for a second. Um, and then just, oh, that was it. And so you are you using steady cam following these people through the space. What kind of like camera set? It was, for me, it was a mixture of steady cam and handheld because mm -hmm. I felt like the story kind of required it at this point because everything had gone so downhill and everything was so chaotic and the mm. character was so desperate that I felt like going hand out at this point the idea of like really having lost control and just trying to survive is just something mm. that plays nicer handheld but then also like the first half of that scene when he's kind of slowly creeping in and stalking her that was steady cam because mm. I really wanted that sense of like this 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 slow threat and build the suspense and then there's that part where he starts kind of bursting from tube to tube and that's kind of where it takes off and we switch to handheld. Okay, so build on that stick. Oh, interesting, yeah. great thing. So uh, I think we've got a couple of questions then before we like move on to like the next section of the chat. Sean, what, what questions have we got in? Yeah, so the first of the two here is, did you ever experience self-doubt on sets when you made the big step to vigil? Or did it feel like a natural career progression and therefore did you have a natural progression of confidence? I mean, I think we all have imposter syndrome. I think that's a very natural thing to have. And I definitely, it, I was kind of in two minds about it. I, I felt that that's the progression I really wanted. And I did kind of, you know, big myself up to myself and make me feel like that's the progression I deserved. But at the same time, you know, you, you still feel like, oh my God, can I actually do this? Uh, can I actually, and, and with Vigil in particular, because it was such an amazing ensemble of like, stars basically at a level that I'd never worked with before like how do I get to respect how do I get them to respect me um and <laughs> but to be honest what what I found and visual was really the first job where I kind of noticed that for myself is that once I'm there once I'm on set I just switch into a tunnel mode and thankfully that kind of falls away because it has to and, and I'm a very instinctive director. And I, as soon as I'm behind the monitor and I watch something, I will know what to do with it. And I will know what I want to do differently or, or once it works, I will know once it works. Um, and that is just something that actually in the process of making Vigil, I, I learned to trust that. So like even the show that I've done now, I didn't really have that as much anymore, that fear. But I remember that the night before I started filming, it was one of those where I was like, in bed early watching Frozen and eating ice cream and like trying to, <laughs> you know, um, trying to not be too scared. But yeah, one, once I was there, and I have to also say that the, the cast on Vigil was so welcoming and really, really amazing. Like it, it could have been so much harder, but they very much welcomed me with open arms and like really made me feel like they wanted my direction, which is a really nice feeling. 
and and made that a, a really pleasant set to be on. And what was the key to gaining their respect, Isabel, if you had to like put it in a <laughs> sentence? Um, I think, I mean, for me, like I, I'm really prepared and I'm really nice. And I feel like that that is how I like to do my job. And I feel like that's how I win actors over is by making them see that I, I, I come really prepared. I know what I'm doing, but I'm also really going to be nice to them and make them feel safe and welcome. And I think particularly with Saran and Rose, like that's how we really, really bonded because I was I was there to listen to them and I was, you know, I, I was there to make sure that they're happy and that they're looked after. And Rose as well, because she was pregnant whilst we were filming and she oh, was wow. very, she was very pregnant by the end of our shoot. And she still had to run around and do stunts and do long days. And I just wanted to make sure that she feels that she can always come to me and say, look, I'm feeling really exhausted. Can we please do my close up first in this next scene? So I can then unwind a bit, basically, and and that's the kind of relationship I build with them. So I, I feel like that's hopefully how I how I won them over. Good to know. And is there another one, Sean? Yes, um, this one um, is going back a bit further. So what you were talking about uh, regarding interviews and meetings, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's a really important one because from a lot of the interactions I have with members, there does seem to be an issue with not receiving feedback and sometimes responses at all. So the question is, in um, the meetings and interviews you had for potential TV shows, what were the things they were looking for from yourself as a director? I mean, I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew that I wouldn't have had to do 23 interviews. Um, I, I genuinely don't know. I feel like I feel like often they don't know. And that's kind of the problem, because I, I did feel when I was in there and I was pitching and I, I came very prepared um, that they all responded to what I was saying. And usually I mean, there's always meetings where you just don't connect with each other. And then that's that. But I felt like in those 23 interviews I did, there were quite a few where we really connected and where the feedback was really positive. Um, but then it went to somebody else. So I think probably at the end of the day, it was just maybe my lack of experience that made them nervous. And they went with, they always, like, when I then found out who got the job, it was always somebody much older and more experienced. So I, I imagine that that was it because because I was going for jobs at a certain level. Um, there was just less, I think the higher the level, the less the willingness to get somebody young and new onto it. I mean, and, and I completely understand that thought process, but it, it is also, you know, when you look at some productions in the US, there seems to be more of a willingness to, invest in in exciting new voices and take a risk i think it's a different attitude in the us that's for sure you know that maybe like risk averse um so i can't say for sure what they were looking for but that the feeling i got from who they always went with in the end was that it was probably just what that that phrase that i hate but i always hear is a safe pair of hands Mm-hmm. I think a safe pair of hands is is really not what anybody should be going for because then they're going to play it safe and not going to create anything special. Um, that's just my opinion. <laughs> I think I think that people maybe have slightly less experience but are really really eager to do well and work really really hard and have new ideas will most likely turn up with a with a better piece of work in the end. Right. Is there any more, Sean? Uh, there is one more, but I'm wondering whether we should save that one for the last section. Just because yeah, I'm I can see. I think we should there. actually. We'll, we'll, we'll answer that, Karis, but we'll, we'll wait until the end for that. We've got another Q and A section coming up. So, um, <laughs> so moving on then. Just um, obviously, so uh, we've we talked we've talked about video and another clip from Vision in a second, but it's got this. Um, it's got this huge kind of 
action set pieces, submarine, military threat, nuclear threat. But alongside that, it's got this really kind of emotional, strong background about a, a woman who's recovering from grief and also like embarking on a new relationship to the first time with another woman. Um, like, but how did you what, approach sort of like discussions and rehearsals with the actors in that case? And uh, we'll talk about that, but do you want to look at the clip first, Isabel, or do you want to talk about that and then look at the clip? Which would you prefer? I don't mind. Should we let's look at the clip so we yeah, can look at the clip? Yeah. Uh, so if we could just uh, so bear in that question in mind, everybody, Sean, if you could just play the clip from the kiss clip from Vigil, please. Our final scene is a heartfelt moment from episode four of Vigil, as DCI Silver opens up about her feelings to DS Longacre and the two share a kiss, starting at 50 minutes. So it's obviously a really sort of tender and delicate scene there, like com- completely different world of the, the yeah. you know, high action submarine scenes. So what were your kind of like touchstones for working with the actors and performances, and particularly, you know, scenes of this really kind of intimate nature? Yeah, I mean, uh, coming back to your earlier questions, like because I did the second half of the show, I didn't have any rehearsal time with the actors at all. Uh, okay filming um but I did meet up with both Saran and Rose separately before we started filming and just kind of talk about that that element of their character and and how they felt about it and what their thoughts were what my thoughts were just having a, a like a, a a good long conversation about it which again is is kind of for me also about making them understand that I'm there and I've got their back and mm. um, I I, I really care about that element of the story and I know they both really cared about the, that element of the story. Um, and they very much both did their own separate research as well. And f- for me, I ended up meeting up with someone who had a similar experience as Saran's characters that they discovered as an adult um, after having been married to a man um, that, and then suddenly fell in love with a woman and caught them off guard and trying to change their life and their sexuality. Uh, th- that was important to me just to kind of speak to someone who'd gone through that and make sure that I kind of get to ask them my questions and get an understanding of what that time of their life was like mm. uh, so that was my personal prep and then I mean so this particular scene was it was actually Saran's final day of filming on the show oh, wow. um, and we filmed that scene and we also filmed a few scenes from episode six um just with Saran and Rose that were improvised. All of the fight scenes that come up in episode six were improvised. So we'd, that was the final scene we shot in the day. So we'd spent the whole day with them kind of (laughs) arguing as a couple. Mm. Um, So it it was a really nice way to kind of come come into that scene. And in terms of like how I envisioned it and how I prepped for it, there are two elements to that scene. One is the, you know, the side of it where Rose comes home in Mm. in the current timeline. And then the cat walks into the living room and the lights go on and she remembers. And that was one that I very much planned as it is now. Because I really, when I read that on the page, even though it didn't say anything about that, but I, I really wanted that magical realism element in it and see the lights go on. Um, so so that was that part of it. But then the actual scene of them getting together was a really, really organic um way that we we found that in the moment really um sorry it's interesting you say that because it could have quite easily just been a hard cut to a flashback but it had this kind of like magical feel to it but then sorry just to go back to you slightly you were talking about improvisation with the actors so Mm. 
didn't have rehearsal time. So was yeah. it purely improvising on set during the block before you shot yeah. the first take, or were you were you just running cameras and shooting as they went for it? Or no, we 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 did an, an improvised rehearsal and mm-hmm. kind of found the scene. And once we the three of us were happy, we then brought the crew in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a nice way to go and again as well I think for, for these intimate scenes I was I try to just keep the set clear um, and just have you know the script supervisor me sometimes the DOP but I think in this case the, Rory wasn't actually there I think he, he came in later but I knew I knew that the coverage was going to be fairly simple so it wasn't going to be challenging for the DOP because mm-hmm. it, it was such a character driven moment and I mean I should also say that the the kind of visual style for those relationship flashbacks had been set up in the first block so Mm -hmm. it wasn't that I was then going to do something completely different so it wasn't always going to be handheld and on a particular lens that we used for for these scenes so that made it easier for me to then also focus it entirely on their performance Um, but I remember when we rehearsed that scene that you know Saran came to with a certain idea of how she was going to play it and Rose came into it so it it was a conversation then it was them kind of yeah finding it and again I felt like and also there were some things in the script that we didn't end up doing um, and we kind of stripped it down a bit and kept it kept it really simple and and just kind of yeah ended it on this on this nice kiss so much kind of more looser kind of responsive she yeah and and really really simplified because I think they do so much in that scene just with their looks Um, yeah totally and I I think just just noting just generally obviously normally uh, the actors were offered an intimacy coordinator, but they decided they didn't want one, which was the actor's choice, obviously. But normally that would be standard on any yes. stuff we should Definitely. mention briefly. Yeah. But just moving on to the kiss became a bit of a phenomenon, didn't it, in itself? Um, it even like, had its own hashtag on uh, Twitter. Yeah. Silver, I think. Silvaker, Amy <laughs> Silver and Kirsten Longacre. So it's yeah. <laughs> but re- really welcomed by the LGBTQ community, which is interesting. So yeah. how did you find that response? Were you, were you expecting that? or I mean, it was amazing. Like, I mean, with this, it was one of those things where when I read the script, um, I felt that this was going to be something special. And mm-hmm. when we filmed those scenes, I really felt that it was going to be something special because we all like really, really cared. And the three of us wanted it to, to have a certain tone and for it to, to feel intimate and nice and mm. and real um and so I really felt like it sounds cheesy but there was something really magic in the air when we did those scenes um but you never know what the response is going to be and especially if it's mm. you know a, a marginalized community that I'm personally not a part of so there is that aspect of it as well like I, I tried my very best but obviously um you, you never know how it's going to be received so it was it was a relief and a joy to see how well it was received. And it definitely exceeded my expectations in terms of just how much love we got for that. Definitely. Yeah, really, because I, I was looking at Twitter when, on the night when I watched something, it came out and it really was massively welcome the next day, yeah. which was nice, you know, yeah. to see that, um, you know, you obviously feel the weight of it as responsibility of it as director. So it's good to see that that had been, you know, acknowledged. Um, yeah. So. So r- r- moving on from visual then, you currently, I know you can't tell as much about it before we do our last bit of Q&A, but you work on the Devil's Hour for Hartswood um, yes. when you're in post now. Um, I'm in post, I was telling you earlier, there's actually going to be a first teaser of the show this week, but we, we just missed it, so we can't show it. That's a shame because it would make it. <laughs> but it'll be coming out later this week. Um, I can't say much about it at all, but it's, it's for Amazon Prime. 
And it stars Peter Capaldi, Jessica Rain, and Nikesh Patel, who are all amazing. And it's written by a writer called Tom Moran. It's his first show as a showrunner, and produced by Sue Virtue and Stephen Moffat from Hartswood Films, who did Sherlock and Dracula and lots of very good shows. Um, and it's they were just, to be honest, they were just the best scripts I read last year after doing Vigil because I, I got sent I got sent so many like Scottish crime shows or nautical thrillers which I <laughs> think was like a subgenre but I think a lot of sadly a lot of producers don't have a, a huge imagination so they think of you know who, who's done a boat let's send it to Isabel <laughs> um, but obviously I'm not you know necessarily wanting to do lots of boat shows from now on yeah um, so it was just, they were just the best scripts that I'd read and they're incredibly like kind of mind bending and several genres within one. And, and the great thing as well was that Tom, the writer, had already mapped out the full three season arc. So when I started prep, all the scripts for season one were ready um, and we already knew what the full story was going to be. And that was so helpful and such a luxury, which mm. made, made it a really nice project to be a part of. And also, just on a sort of side note, I know I know it's recent. You've signed with a big US agent, UTA, and yes. so your plans in the future to work across the pond, UK, and US. Is that part of the master plan? Stepping up next time? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I think it's an exciting time because so many American shows are now being made here, so you don't even necessarily have to go across the pond mm. to make something for them for the streamers. So that's really exciting. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it was so nice how how well Vigil did but it, again it kind of makes me feel like maybe I shouldn't do another uh, BBC drama next at least not a second block because that would then be stagnating for mm. me um, but also it, it would be really unlikely that if I did another show like that that it would reach the same level of success mm. so it's just about me and my strategic brain kind of thinking about okay what's the next step where can I go next that's new and that's different and that's bigger so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to work on something American for sure. Yeah, In, interesting that you mentioned strategic I'm really getting a sense of that, that each time that you get in a new thing, it's like a step up or a move up, which is interesting. Yeah. I think it's easy to forget that when you you need a job, basically, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just, I mean, again, I, ha- I have the luxury that I don't have a family to feed, mm-hmm. so I feel like now's the time for me to make those choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, and also I, th- I think before you know it you get stuck in in a certain box so it's it's important to me to try and avoid that at all costs and mm-hmm. see what other what other genres I can do like I mean this the devil's hour is quite different from vigil or anything I've done before um in terms of that so that's really exciting for me but also not just strategically but just thinking about what new things can I learn mm-hmm. on, on the next job I think that's really important too that I just try to pick projects that teach me something new mm-hmm. Good way to go, I think. I think we've got a few questions in our last bit of QA in the last few minutes, and then we'll hand over to Sean to see what questions we've got. Yeah, we've got two here. Um, first one is you mentioned taking things out of the script for Vigil. Did you have to consult with the producers beforehand? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, it was Vigil was such a unique setup because, because we were filming it during COVID at a time where there weren't yet any vaccines or anything. So there were very strict protocols and there actually weren't any producers on set. So in a way that gave me a lot of freedom because like on the day, it was really just me, the cast and the crew making the choices. But obviously if it was anything that was gonna 
like affect the story, then I would always phone them. Or, I mean, with a lot of the bigger scenes, like Saran was incredibly involved in um, making the scripts better, I will say, <laughs> and, and having a lot of inputs, creative inputs. Um, especially kind of that, that final reunion scene in, in episode six where the two of them get together again. That was something that was rewritten several times. And that was something that we worked on whilst we were filming, um, feeding back notes. Uh, so, yeah, so that was that scenario where we just kind of try to fix it in advance and let the team know. But then there were also moments on set where we realized, OK, this doesn't quite work. Um, we need to drop these few lines or we need to change that line. And then, you know, I, I would try to always call the story producers, but if it was if it was small things, maybe on a rush, then yeah, we, we didn't. We just did what we could on the day. And and you know, there there was never there was never a case where they came back to us and said, What did you do? You ruined it. So like I, I feel like we always delivered uh, good enough work, even if it was uh, changed on on the day. And I'm I'm guessing actors of that caliber uh can have opinions about dialogue, et cetera, et cetera. Quite strong ones, you know. And and usually, and I, I've definitely felt that on Chetland, where Dougie Henshaw has like full 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 authority to change his dialogue, oh. um, and but he's a really good writer, <laughs> like, <he's> <laughs> better <laughs> than anyone. Um, and I I feel with actors of that caliber, like listen to them because often they'll have a reason for why a line doesn't work or their suggestion will be really valid. Mm. So I think we've got to, well. Final question here, and that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid, but I think it's a good one to end on. And it's, what moment did you feel like you made it and what qualifies as success for you? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't think I feel that way still. Like, I, do, I still look at myself as someone who's kind of up and coming, <laughs> for sure. Um, what does success look like for me? I think, and obviously I'm, I'm guilty of sometimes comparing myself to others because we live in the social media world and, and everyone's success is always right in front of you. But I, I try to just look at myself like a year ago, a couple of years ago, and try, try to remember when I like dreamt of the steps that I've just taken now. And so I, I try to celebrate those successes, like th things like the BAFTA nomination, that's something that I dreamt of, oh my God, for as long as I can remember. So something like that, like I try to, celebrate that success but I don't think I, I definitely don't feel like I've made it <laughs> I don't know if anyone ever does to be honest and that's maybe a good thing because you've got to kind of stay hungry in a way and, and stay excited about the next project and the next adventure and not grow tired of it because it is an incredibly exhausting and sometimes quite isolating job mm. so I think um, that's kind of part of it staying hungry and, and not feeling safe I guess safe safe in the sense that you can just kind of relax and stretch your feet and see what comes your way because I, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Um, These are quite a bit to choices as well that like um, the more success you have the better choices you have in the next job do you think or? Um, I mean in general yes absolutely but I do think like for me where I'm now like I still want whatever I do next always to be bigger and better and, and greater <laughs> So I still always have to fight for those because I'm not looking for things that are, a lot of the things that you get sent are very similar to what you've just done. And often they're slightly worse than what you've just done because people mm. try to aim high for their projects. So I still feel like everything I want, I still have to fight for. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, not a bad thing. I think that's good. Good way to end. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Isabel. It's been amazing. Really, um, nice thank you. It's been really nice to.
talk to you. Thank you. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.